All right, I think we're going to go ahead and get started. Um, if you are here for growing awareness and creating change, museums and the disability community, you're in the right place. Um, my name is Sharon Smith, and I will be uh, the chair as well as I'm going to talk a little bit as well, um, but I'm going to mostly leave the, uh, the time for my two colleagues that are up here. And I will introduce them as they come up so that uh, you're kind of aware of, of who they are just as they get ready to talk. And since this is being recorded, that will also help um, the folks who are listening. Um, so what I want to begin with is to give you a sense of why we're here. This is a very passionate trio that you, <clears throat> excuse me, that you have up here today. And we're passionate because this is a topic that we feel really needs to get momentum. And one of the ways that, that we can do that is to come to conferences and, and share our story. So um, I want to begin by showing you some slides from an exhibit that uh, we had at the History Museum that I can um, actually boast a moment and say was an award winner last year with the AS ASLH uh, Award of Merit. So we were um, pleased to have that happen for this exhibit. And it's now not, uh, it's, it's no longer up at the History Museum, but we can um, share it through some slides. So the very first slide that you see is the title panel uh, Americans with uh, D the Americans with Disabilities Act 20 years later. That was the name of the exhibit. And this was the panel that you saw coming in. It's very touchable and tactile. And I'm not even going to go into the components of the exhibit because that's something that uh, Whitney will talk about when he, uh, when he comes up. We, uh, we were fortunate to work with a panel of um, advisors that we um, selected from the disability community, both people with disabilities and people who worked within the disability field. And one of the things that they first taught us, that they first taught me especially, I shouldn't speak for the rest of uh, the people here, especially not Colleen, but one of the things that I learned was that there was a watershed moment, and there were many, but one of the watershed moments uh, for the disability community and, and understanding about disability was the time when polio was really rampant in this country. And what, what people were finding was how fearful they were about contracting that disease because it was very debilitating, right? It, was, it, it often left people either uh, in wheelchairs, living in wheelchairs, having to use a wheelchair, having to um, live in an iron lung, which was more often the case in, in um, the really drastic uh, places where uh, people were. And that's why we put the iron lung in the exhibit. It became an iconic first moment in that exhibit for people. So we put that in there, reminded people that this was an opportunity to talk about a statistic, which was that the disability community is the largest minority, and it's also the only minority that any of us can join at any time, which is sort of a sobering thought when you think about that. And we can join it in a number of ways. We can join it with an illness, such as polio. Um, we can join it because there's an accident um, that happens and we um, either are temporarily disabled by, like, using a, uh, having to use a walker or crutches, whatever, and we can also um, realize now with the amount of folks coming back from the um, wars how that can also uh, bring about uh, uh, an increase in the disability community. So, so that was sobering. But 
I'll come back to that um, that thought in a moment as we get through this exhibit. If we go a little further around the corner, we realize that people were trying to, in the days before the ADA, people tried to hide their disability. They tried to um, conceal it so that they didn't get pitied or they didn't get put away in an institution. So there was there were devices if, if they needed hearing devices and so on and so forth. And, you know, if you want to know more about this exhibit in particular uh, areas, we'll talk about it in the question and answer period. But we had we had some of those devices on display. We got around a little further, <clears throat> and about where that woman is standing, we started to talk about uh, folks in the disability community were rising up to become advocates for change. And they were trying to um, fight for their own civil rights. And that came about in part, even in our own city in St. Louis, with um, Max and Colleen Starkloff, who fought tireless, tirelessly for things such as curb cuts and um, bus lifts. And we were the first city to actually implement the bus lifts. Other cities were having them, um, talking about having them, but we were the first ones to actually put them on the on the uh, ground and, and use them. So that's that's kind of a nice moment for us to talk about. You know, St. Louis really was one of these places that that had a lot of advocates for for change. You can also see in this image the um, the graphic of President Bush signing the ADA into law. That happened in um, June of uh, 1990, July 26th, I'm sorry, not June, July 26th, 1990. And that image is very powerful. And uh, we had the graph, while the graphic was right there, you could hear his words of the of the speech. We go around, we talk a little bit more about what the ADA meant, its various components, and then finally... Oh, that was the last one. Oops. Um, can I go back to that one? I can't. Okay. Um, <clears throat> what we ended up doing was in that final section, the other half of the gallery was um, this business of where, how, how far have we come and how far do we need to go. And the image that kept coming to mind was that while we've gotten some legislation, the, the civil rights um, changed and, and became better for folks with disabilities, there's still work to be done. And there's a lot of things that have to change. And that's why we're here today. We're here to um, continue that effort. And, and one way that we can do that is to make our public institutions more accessible, in fact, fully accessible if, if we can. And that's always the goal, is to be as fully accessible as possible. One of the things that the History Museum did as a result of going through this process, and I have to tell you it was life-changing for me, <clears throat> was to um, reinstitute our accessibility committee, of which now I'm um, co-chairing that, and, and it's, it's quite an honor to do that. We, um, so we are, we are looking at our own institution in ways that we can be fully accessible, whether that's with our website, whether it's with our building, as well as every exhibit that we put on the floor and bring into the museum. And, and again, Whitney and, and Colleen, we're, we're all going to kind of have some, some opportunities to talk about that. So back to that largest minority, and we can join at any time. If we were on, if, if, if I heard that and we were on the um, side of the gallery before the ADA was signed, I would have been really scared with that statistic. But we're on the other side of the ADA being passed. And thanks to all of those folks who, who passed that legislation and worked to have it passed, knowing that is a little easier. Because now, if that happens, you know, we're not going to be just put away in an institution. People with disabilities are viable people in our community. We see them all the time. We see them everywhere. You didn't see that before 1990. 
and now you see them all the time. And that means that we want to bring them into these institutions and we want them to feel like they have every advantage and every opportunity to view our um, our buildings and our exhibits as you and I sitting here today. So um, the last thing that I want to say is, am I doing okay on time? The last thing I want to say is that the mantra that I carried through that exhibit and I think that the whole team carried through <clears throat> was that um, this business of growing awareness. If we grow awareness, change can happen and it will happen. But we have to be aware. If we don't know that there are barriers, and that's the whole the whole reason for change, is that we have to understand what those barriers are first. We have to know, oh, there is no curb cut there. So that means that people using wheelchairs, people using strollers, it's not just about the disability community when we finally get it all said and done, right? But anybody that can't roll something up over that curb, that's a problem. If they can't climb up those steps because they have some device that prevents that, or maybe they just can't physically lift their legs, you know, they're, they're, they have some sort of a weakness, they need a ramp. And wonder if that ramp isn't there. And all of a sudden you start to notice that. I remember whenever I was going through this exhibit, working on it, I would start looking at all the buildings. Just I wasn't even thinking about it. I'm like, where's the ramp? Hmm, I wonder where the, you know, where the curb cut is here. And I started to notice those things. And that growing awareness is the beginning of change. And once you have that, you um, you can you can really work wonders because you understand what those barriers are. You want to eradicate them. Using incorrect language is the other thing that sort of I've become um, very sensitive to. So. Um, I try to use people first language. I probably don't always do it um, as well as I'd like, but I really, really bristle if I hear somebody say handicapped. I, I you know, I like chills go down and, you know, the whole thing because I know that that's not really the best way to describe a situation. And that's kind of what we want to bring to you. So we're hoping that in the course of this um, next hour and few minutes that we can give you some of that awareness so that you can take it back to your institutions and you can spread that word just a little bit further. And through the ripple effect, before we know it, all of our institutions and all of our exhibits will find ways to be as accessible as possible. So I'm going to start with Whitney Watson, who is um, College Museum. He's a senior exhibits designer, and he worked with me on the ADA exhibit and um, brings to us a lot of um, passion and a lot of energy when we look at um, ways that we can make uh, exhibits accessible, and he'll talk a bit about universal design as well. Whitney. Okay. <clears throat> Thanks, Sharon. Okay, uh, the first slide is a circle with a question mark. And that's a symbol that we associate with getting information. And one of the things I want to do here is be a resource for all of you to get additional information on how to make not only your exhibitions but also your museum programs more accessible. About five years ago, uh, we started working on a project that was focused on the disability rights movement 
and the representation of disability in our society. But as that turned out, uh, it was a project that was really too big for the team and for the institution to successfully complete. But out of that work grew the idea to celebrate the 20th anniversary of the Americans with Disabilities Act. So with a team of advisors, some with and some without disabilities, and staff from the History Museum, we began this journey to make an exhibition about the ADA and to make an exhibition that was as accessible as we could within the time and budget for the project. And journey is really the right term. It implies a process. Uh, There's a beginning, but not necessarily an end. There's an accumulation of knowledge and experience. The exhibit team developed a shorthand phrase for this journey, which you've already heard from Sharon, growing awareness. And we could say that to each other, and we would know and be reminded about that journey. And being accessible is important. It increases the size of the potential audience for our programs and our exhibitions. In the United States, approximately 20% of the population, or 62 million people, have a disability that impacts their ability to participate in activities. And at some point, 70% will have a temporary or long-term disability. And abilities vary across our audience. Some have greater strength, reach, dexterity, or endurance. And this image shows an example of two extremes. This is Tyrone Bogues. He's one of the shortest NBA players ever. And a teammate, Manuti Bowl, who is over seven feet tall. And if we want more visitors and an increase to our bottom line, we need to improve our accessibility wherever we can and for whomever we can. The Missouri History Museum has an aggressive exhibition schedule. It's a mix of exhibitions that are developed and produced in-house and traveling exhibits. They range in size from 1,000 square feet to 12,000 square feet. After a number of years and many exhibitions, I have a list of ways to make exhibitions and programs more accessible to visitors. I want to start with a short checklist for traveling exhibitions. These are questions that hopefully anyone receiving or circulating a traveling exhibit can answer yes to. If not, then there's more work that needs to be done to make the exhibition as accessible as possible. So the first question, is the text readable because of color, size, or lighting? Is there space for people to easily move through the gallery? Are video elements open captioned, or can captions be turned on? Are transcripts provided for audio elements, including audio tours? Is there a description of ambient audio effects in the gallery? Are case heights and the placement of objects on the wall, or in cases, easy for everyone to see? And in in fact, one of the things we are getting ready to open a traveling exhibition, uh, Discovering the Real George Washington. And it loaded in last week. I got to see some of the elements for the first time. um, And I realized we need a large print version of the text so that anybody can read it as they go through the exhibition. And the team from Mount Vernon said, 
Absolutely. What a great idea. We'll send you the electronic file on Monday, and we'll print it and post it and make it available. All right. So I want to imagine taking a trip to a museum with my extended family. I have some elderly parents. Uh, my dad wears hearing aids, and he has the gain <clears throat> turned up to the point that everybody around him can hear the feedback. Um, I have uh, two teenage, I have a, a son who's a senior in college and another son who's a freshman in high school, <clears throat> and then my wife and I. So we go to an exhibition, and we walk in, and it's beautifully lit, which is sort of designer code for being really dark and uh, dramatic, blotchy kind of lighting. <clears throat> but as I get in, I notice that on the wall, there's a booklet this is large print text. Right. Oh, good. Thank goodness. I can get this binder. I can hand this to my parents. They can read the label copy as they go along. I can read the label copy as I go along because, truthfully, uh, my eyes are not what they used to be. Well, and the, and the very next thing we see is there's a, a, an oral history about an object in that very first case. Well, that's fine for me because I can still hear it. But, you know, it's not, it doesn't work for my dad. But hanging next to the case, there's a transcript of that audio piece. So he can read it and he can follow along too. So these two accommodations, these two items, they're simple, they're easy to do, and they help a lot of folks. <clears throat> now this line drawing shows... Um, a person in a wheelchair, and it's one of our symbols for accessibility that we see frequently. But the next thing I, I find as we go through this exhibit, well, there's, a, there's some hallways or corridors that are really tight. And now I can't walk side by side with either my wife or my parent, one of my parents and talk about the things that are on either side. Gee, it would have been really great if in laying out that exhibition there had been a five-foot wide aisle. But at least there's three feet. So, you know, one, at a per, one time, one time, bah, one person at a time can go through the exhibit. Now, Sharon mentioned ramps, and that's certainly uh, one of the things that we talk about doing for accessibility is putting a ramp in at the exterior building or the outside. But that's often uh, can be really expensive, and many times uh, institutions sort of go, wait a minute, we can't do that. And there may be some reasons why it's not immediately practical, but as time has gone on, uh, ramps are uh, much more cheaply uh, purchased and installed. All right. So, you know, I, my son, uh, my high school senior, or college senior, is over six feet tall. So I'm, hiding, I'm always looking up at him like this. Uh, my other son is on the short side, has always been, and so I'm always looking down at him. And I find that when we go through an exhibit, if things are placed so that my youngest son can easily see into the display cases or easily see the items on the wall, then everybody else in our family group can do that as well. And so this is an example, a reminder of where to place things on the wall, how high up, 
and that cases really should be relatively low, about 36 inches tall. Now, none of my family group uh, reads Braille at this point, uh, probably never will, um, because it's a very time-consuming uh, language to learn. This image shows uh, three dots or six dots and two columns of three above the word Braille. And this would be fairly challenging for an institution to include because there's finding a vendor to produce the Braille labels. There's the planning needed to uh, determine the layout, where it fits in with all the other panels. And it's also cost. So in a world of fixed resources, some decisions do have to be made. But I would argue that if we are going to make labels in Spanish, French, or any other language, we should put Braille on there also, because that's a language just like that. <clears throat> there are some serious conversations going on about the future of printed materials in Braille, and it's a reasonable question from museums with limited resources. Do I want to make things in Braille or not? We chose, the Missouri History Museum chooses to include Braille labels for two reasons. One, it makes the content accessible to visitors that do read Braille. And two, and I think this is as important, it alerts other visitors that we are, being at working, we are working at being inclusive to all visitors. So when somebody sees that and they say, what is it? Parents can have a conversation with their kids about, oh, this is Braille and this is here for people who are blind. It really helps set a tone. And one other thing, just like the large print version, is we can produce Braille handouts, booklets, so visitors can take that with them as well. Now, I said, you know, we're going on through the exhibition. My dad doesn't hear very well. We come to the first video, and it's open-captioned. There are the text and a description of any audio effects is all, always there across the bottom of the screen. That makes it easy for him to participate in the experience. And, in fact, for my youngest son, uh, he learns best <clears throat> by watching the captions on TV. It's easier for him to follow the dialogue. So having that there is relatively easy to do. There are many vendors who can do it. Um, it allows people with diminished or, or hearing, loss of hearing to follow the events on the screen. And it only takes a little bit of extra planning to determine where to place that, that text. Uh, typically at the bottom of the screen is easiest. If you've watched captioning on your TV at home, you'll notice that it jumps from the bottom to the top. And well, <clears throat> TV standards are such that there are actually three zones for placement of captioning. Uh, and that's why it's, it's problematic. But planning ahead means they can always be in a, in a nice place. And I was reminded recently, Colleen was saying, oh, yeah, we use YouTube as a means of automatically captioning uh, our videos. And that's great. I think there are some caveats for that. One is uh, you have to own the material to have it captioned. It can't be... Um, to down, I guess to download the transcript of the captioned video. And 
there are, it's not perfect. So if you've seen um, tra- uh, captioning on TV during a sporting event or the local news, uh, you know how funny some of those mistakes can be, and that's true for YouTube as well. Um, closed captioning, uh, which is what we're primarily familiar with in terms of TV, uh, is something that gets turned on and off by the user. Um, and it's really tempting because if you use a commercially made video product, one of the History Channel pieces, for example, to supplement an exhibition, um, it's great because it's already done. The problem for me is that anytime I have to ask a visitor to identify themselves as having a disability, to ask them to call attention to uh, their abilities makes, it, makes them self-conscious, and they are likely not to do that. And it diminishes their experience uh, in the gallery. All right, so we're continuing on in the exhibition. <clears throat> yeah, thank you. Um, and one of the things we find is there are, there are things to touch. Uh, there are reproductions, there's facsimiles, there's maps, images, anything that's engaging for the visitor. In, the history, in our ADA exhibit, um, we had a crutch that we wanted to show in the exhibit. We wanted to give people access to it. But we couldn't figure out. We thought about buying another crutch. We ran into space issues. So we wound up having a small-scale version made in metal that people could touch. Now, this is a fairly challenging kind of activity to undertake, is making tactile elements because of the planning involved, <clears throat> the choices, um, the procurement part of it. But it's, the rewards are really great. In this slide, uh, there's a torch that was carried in the 10th anniversary of the ADA uh, celebration. We found that making a facsimile of that, a reproduction, was great because not, ever, not only did people who had low vision or blind enjoy it, but children enjoyed it as well. Now, in our Civil War exhibit, we actually ran headlong into issues of time, planning, money, um, space. And what we wound up doing, unfortunately, was having an exhibition that was pretty typical of most museum exhibitions. Most everything is behind glass. And what we did, and in some ways unknowingly, was privilege those with any loss, without any loss of visual acuity, in their experience of the exhibition. So they got the most out of it. Here's another example of a tactile graphic. Um, It's it's a challenge to make. Um, This is a a drawing, if you will, quote-unquote drawing, of the inner ear. And it'll be translated or made into a graphic and combined into a booklet that's a science textbook for students who are blind. Anyway, uh, one of the things that's a challenge about this is how much information to include and how little. Maps are a similar uh, aspect in terms of what can be included and what should be omitted. The National Park Service has a lot of information on their website about accessibility and making tactile maps and graphics. So, as I said, this is uh, another thing that Um, my family group didn't necessarily need, but 
having a descript- an audio description, so the letter A, D, followed by three curved lines or sound waves uh, radiating out, indicates that for visitors with low vision or who are blind, they can have a verbal description of what that experience in the exhibition would be like. This is a really big challenge because it means first getting a vivid description of the exhibition and then translating that into text, getting it reviewed by people with disabilities, then producing it as an audio piece, either as a podcast or on some other device, and making and placing um, stops. So the complexity and cost is, is fairly high, but it's very rewarding. Um, now I'm going to take a couple minutes because you were short. <laughs> Uh, I want to talk about, thank you. Um, this is not an, a, an official symbol, which is one of what the others are, this uh, silhouette of a human head with sort of the yin-yang symbol. But we used it on our team to stand for uh, those visitors who had some kind of cognitive or uh, developmental or psychiatric disability. And we want them to know that they're welcome as well. Uh, the Smithsonian has a very uh, good guideline for making exhibitions uh, more accessible. Uh, what they talk about is uh, having a map with icons on the map that help people with disabilities, uh, developmental disabilities or cognitive disabilities <coughs> find specific uh, places within the gallery to complete their, to make their experience uh, complete. Also, uh, you can do this with numbered um, icons on a map which not only help those with cognitive disabilities, but they'd also help families with small children. You can say, go find this, go find that, and they get a complete experience. Um, So far, I've talked mostly about exhibitions. I want to talk a little bit about programming uh, for for two cases. One is here for uh, sign language interpreters. That is, sign language interpreters is a great program um, accommodation. It means that visitors who are deaf and have learned sign language can come and participate in any program that's being offered. Um, There is a burden, and and making it available on request is important, is a good first step. However, again, that means somebody has to identify, I need aid, I need help, and rather than making themselves, uh, exposing that need, they may just decide, oh, I'm not going to go. And we want to try and make things more welcoming. So having sign language interpreter at every venue or every program might be a better way to go. <clears throat> C-A-R-T stands for Communication Access Real-time, <clears throat> Real-Time Translation. It's like open captioning for programs. It takes a little more equipment takes a specialized operator, but they will do it in real time as a lecturer is presenting in the uh, program. It's great. It's used in schools for kids who haven't learned sign language but who need, who don't hear well, and they need that extra support. It's often used to translate English into other languages. Now, it's a little bit more because of that equipment. However, having this would mean that you wouldn't need the sign language interpreter because almost everybody could use it. And again, 
Providing it makes it easier for everyone. So finally, uh, I want to end again with this uh, circling question. I remind you all that we're here to share and receive information. And I do have a handout up at the top of the table uh, for anyone who would like some additional information about making their exhibitions uh, more accessible. Thank you. All right, um, so our second uh, speaker is Colleen Starkloff. Colleen um, sat as one of our advisors to uh, the ADA exhibit, she and her husband, Max. And um, they have, I'm, I'm very privileged, first of all, to call her my friend, and um, as well as colleague. But they, they were instrumental in the History Museum doing this project, um, and I'm sure she's going to talk a bit about that. But I just want to say that... Um, Max and Colleen have always been strong, strong advocates for change and for people with disabilities. And um, without further ado, I'm just going to let you tell all about yourself and everything that you do because it's it's amazing. And uh, please, Colleen, come. Thank you very much, Sharon. And I'm happy to call you my friend, as well as Whitney, as well as Katie. Um, good morning. Thank you so much for coming. Uh, I would like to, before I get started, point out that I have left information, probably copious information for all of you, the lady who sneaked in on the side. Uh, there's information up here. Please take this with you, otherwise I have to take it on the, tra on the plane. And I've gathered a lot of stuff from the exhibition hall yesterday that I'd rather take. And I have that information. And take extras so you can share it with your colleagues back in your museums. Um, and I'll tell you what that information's about in a minute. Um, I want to thank Katie Van Allen, Sharon and Whitney for including me in this presentation today and giving me the opportunity to talk about our movement, the disability rights movement in this country. And in fact, may I have some water, please? And in fact, it's traveling around the world. And to talk about how we were able to bring it, bring our message to the general public in St. Louis through our collaboration with the Missouri History Museum. Thank you. In 1970, my husband and I organized an independent living center in St. Louis called Paraquad. It's because we organized Paraquad because when I met my husband, he was living in a nursing home. He had a C4-5 spinal cord injury, used a power wheelchair, and had realized before I met him that if he didn't do something very dramatic, and he was going to spend the rest of his life and die in a nursing home. And the average age of the people who lived there was about 80 years old. He was 26 when he went in. I met him when he was uh, 35. And during that time that he was living there, he realized um, a, a number of things. One is that the reason that he was there is because our society did not have a strategy for people like himself to live in the community. The idea of people with disabilities being independent, productive, and equal members of our society was a non-issue. Particularly, people with a, uh, a disability as significant as Max Starkloff. The other thing he realized was that in order to 
get out, he needed to create an avenue that also freed other people to get out or not go in in the first place. There's a woman by the name of Ginny Laurie who lived in St. Louis at the time who was a tremendous disability rights advocate. She had no disability, but she had three siblings, two of whom died, uh, four siblings, two, three of whom died of polio, and her brother Bobby survived, and she became Bobby's arms and legs because Bobby had had physical disabilities as a result of of having polio. So Jenny lived a couple blocks from where Max and I moved when after we fell in love and moved out of the nursing home and into St. Louis and began plotting our course to free other people to see themselves as full productive citizens in our society and able to contribute to the well-being of our society. And what we were really doing was was characteristic of what people all over our country and later all over the world were doing, having this epiphany that just because you have a disability doesn't mean you don't matter and that you can't be a full productive member of society. So it gave us um, um, a strategy to coalesce around, and, G- and Ginny was the grand dame, we call her the grand dame of the independent living movement, because Ginny called all of us together. Ginny met a lot of the uh, early leaders in the disability rights movement, Ed Roberts and Judy Human, who also were polio survivors and who had the same kind of thought that you can't institutionalize people and put them on a shelf and say, okay, well, it's too bad what happened to them and we'll take care of them and that's our society's responsibility. And the individuals with disabilities are saying, no, that's not what we want. That's not good enough. We've been disenfranchised and put away long enough and we're not going to have it anymore. And I think, you know, that's, that's how any social movement starts. The people who are affected by societal attitude or policy are the ones who have to change societal attitude and policy. So Jimmy introduced us to Judy Human, Ed Roberts, and a number of other people. And Judy and Ginny, Ginny recognized in us the passion and the spirit we had and the fire. you got to have fire in your eyes to do this. And we had it. No expertise, no sense of how to organize a movement, just fire in the eyes and passion in the heart. And that's what it uh, takes because 40 years ago when we started out, the greatest barrier that we faced was the attitude of society toward people with disabilities. Oh, well, it's too bad. You know, the pity, feeling sorry for, that never does anybody any good. So it, it set us uh, on a mission. And basically, because uh, as, as I think Sharon or Whitney said, there was so much information to be shared, uh, it was too big to share it. That's really the truth. What we realized um, initially is that we could not work on our issues one at a time. Like, there were no lifts on buses. Some of you here will remember that there were not lifts on buses. There may be some of you in this room who don't know a time when there were not lifts on buses. I had I had lunch with a guy who's recently who's having advancing uh, issues because of his MS and and now uses a wheelchair. And when I was having lunch with him, he was not aware that there weren't always lifts on buses. Well, he's a lot younger than I am. We fought hard to get lifts on buses. We fought hard to get curb cuts. We fought hard to have attendant services so that people like my husband wouldn't have landed in an institution in the first place. Now we're not everywhere, we're not, 
where we need to be yet. Uh, but we developed a cross-disability movement, which means cross-disability means we allied ourselves with people who are blind, people who are deaf or hard of hearing, people who have uh, cognitive disabilities, kids with disabilities, parents of, of kids with disabilities, people with mental illness, the whole gamut. Because we know that there's strength in numbers and because an issue never is resolved just by one individual. One voice makes a difference. The power of one is not is not at all, um, I don't know what the word is, it, it's not a non-issue, but, um, but one individual can bring about more individuals who bring about change. And that's what we've done in this country. I'm very proud of the fact that when we started out, whereas you wouldn't even see somebody with a disability on the street, now you do. And now we need to uh, recognize that this movement was a movement full of heroes who came together to change a nation. So, after we left Paraquat in 2003 and started the Starkloff Disability Institute, I've given all of you my cards if you want to keep in touch, um, one of the first things my husband said was, you know, sweetie, we've got a story to tell. We're a part of American history. We need to be featured as such and valued as such. I'm going to call Bob Archibald. And I went, go, honey. Call him up. And he did. He wheeled out of my office and into his office. He calls up Bob Archibald, who was a very, very, very dynamic leader, as you all, I'm preaching to the choir on that, know uh, of his leadership. And Bob is a friend. So he calls up Bob and he said, Bob, you know, the people with disabilities have um, have a history and have a story to tell. And we're a part of American history and, as a matter of fact, a part of world history. And he knew that Bob valued bringing community into the museums and telling the stories of communities. He's been a longtime advocate for that. This conversation went on for about, oh, I don't know, eight or ten minutes. But the deal to do a disability rights exhibit was sealed in less than two because Bob understood that there was a story, and he understood Max Starkloff was one of the people to tell it. Now, when we started on this project, we started in 2005, and it took us till 2010 to do it. Um, what we realized very quickly is that we were not the experts. We had our story, but we didn't know how to tell it. We needed the museum and the talented staff they have at the museum to pick out of all the numerous tons of information we brought to the table and figure out how to tell the public our story. And that was very that was a very important learning experience for us. That was a very important collaboration for us to have. And we now feel like we have some really best friends forever in our history museum in St. Louis. And we're looking forward to more opportunities to continue to tell our story. Now, initially what happened was we wanted to tell the national story. And they said, oh, no, no, no. We're the Missouri History Museum. We have to tell the Missouri story. And we said, oh, no, no, no. We're a representation of what's happening nationally and internationally. So we ended up kind of coming together. And I think we probably threw so much at them they had to pick something. So they picked the ADA, which is exactly where we wanted to end up talking about the Americans with Disabilities Act and putting in the St. Louis contribution to that and all of the issues that led up to why we needed an Americans with Disabilities Act. Um, it's, you know, in, in the Reagan years, uh, 
President Reagan said to us, because one of our big leaders called him Uncle Ronnie, Justin Dart, who uh, was appointed by President Clinton to a, a position, key position in Washington, um, Uncle Ronnie told Justin, well, you know, we don't need any laws for rights for you guys. You've already got the uh, 504 Act, which is affects museums. It's the first uh, first legislation that affected you guys relative to people with disabilities being included, the regulations under Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act of 1973. But he said, you know, people should include you because it's the right thing. And we're thinking, well... If it was, if people were doing the right thing, we'd have been included. We wouldn't be standing here trying to create any laws that change public policy. But you know what we learned, and Justin Dart told us, get involved in politics as if your life depends upon it, because it does. And that's what we did. So we, we got the Ameri- and when I say we, I'm not speaking of Max and Colleen Starkloff. We as a collaborative group of leaders all across the country who were joined by our our passion for completing our journey and creating equality and independence for all people with disabilities. We were joined together, so we worked on the Architectural Barriers Act, the Americans with Disabilities Act, the Rehabilitation Act of 1973, the Education of All Handicapped Children Act of 75, which morphed into the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, the Air Carriers Access Act, da-da-da-da-da-da-da, lots of laws. The Fair Housing Act, I didn't mention that. Uh, all those laws have impacted public policy. So now what we see is museums, uh, w- just to, to kind of bring all this down to where you all are, museums have to be accessible, right? You have to have wider doors. You don't, you're not required to have, I'll give you an example. You have to have a door that's wide enough to get in. You let Whitney talk longer. <laughs> okay, they can ask me questions. <laughs> um, you have you have um, you have to have doors that are at least thirty six inches wide. You don't have to have an automatic door opener. Okay, now let me explain that. There's a code. The Americans with Disabilities Act, for example, is a code. A code never tells you all that you can do. It only tells you the minimum of what you have to do. And I'm here today asking you to do all that you can do. I'm pledging that there are my colleagues all around the country, that if you just invite them to the table like the Missouri History Museum did, you will find willing partners to help you craft a way to welcome all visitors to your museum. And um, I think that's, that's really important because you can include people with disabilities as employees, as volunteers, and as visitors. And that's what you need to sustain the life of your, your museum and your contribution to your community. You need to be a reflection of the community that you serve. And um, so, as Whitney said, he gave you a lot of examples of how you can do that, and I thought he did a great job of it. And your community can layer on uh, more creative ways to include people with disabilities as a part of your museum community. And it's really important to do that. Because, for example, I, how many of you have uh, done an exhibit that is focused on disability? Okay, great. That's a great. <laughs> Here's a new idea. Do an exhibit focused on disability. 
Um, because, because every community has its own local story, just like Max and I have in St. Louis. And, and it's not just Max and I. I mean, we've had, we have hundreds and hundreds and thousands of people in St. Louis who believe we, the way we do. But that's one way to do it. Um, <clears throat> once you have a museum that's accessible, then you need to do training, which is what the Missouri History Museum is embarking on right now. Uh, and they've actually already done one set of training, but you know, personnel changes. But you need to know how to welcome people from a staff point of view. So we will be going in, and people with disabilities will be the trainers, not non-disabled people, and sharing with the museum how people who are blind, who are deaf, who have mobility disabilities, um, have uh, mental health, uh, mental illness disabilities, how those people can be more welcomed into your community. We'll be setting up stations to teach them about technology and how people access it. Um, there, it's actually kind of good to be teaching at the museum because they already get it, but. There's always room to layer on more information and make staff at museums much more um, aware. Um, if you asked me what's the greatest issue that faces people with disabilities today, I will tell you the same thing I told you 10 minutes ago, attitudes toward people with disabilities. That's our biggest barrier. That's why things don't happen for people with disabilities in our community. And that's why we reach out to museums, because museums help us to tell our story. And if the public becomes more aware of our issue and our desire not to be special needs, I hate that word, special needs, um, we don't want to be set aside. We don't want to be labeled as special. We're just like you are. And we want to be included just like you expect to be in museums. And so we don't want to be special. But um, I want to just segue before she gives me the wrap-up. I've given you, with your handouts, and if you don't have one, I'd like to ask if you'd grab one, um, the packets that I've put on the chairs talk to you about an initiative that we are taking now. Uh, the National Disability Rights Leadership is now embarking on celebrating the 25th anniversary of the ADA. As uh, Sharon and Whitney said, the Missouri History Museum organized Americans with Disabilities Act 20 years later to celebrate the 20th anniversary of the ADA. Now we're on to 2015, the 25th anniversary, and all of us in the um, who are on this committee agree that history is a number one issue that we have to focus on. We have a history. We have changed American history. We have changed the lives of millions of people in our society, not only people who currently have a disability and identify as such, but think about the baby boomers. How many baby boomers are in this room? How many? Five. Come on up, guys. You're last, so you got to come in the front, so you get a packet. Um, how many people who are aging into disability, meaning that they've fallen and have a broken hip, and they can't go back home because they can't get into their house because it's not universally designed, which is different than accessible. And I'll answer questions about that if you have them. How many people are losing their vision and they don't say they're blind or low vision, they just say, I can't see as well? Yeah, well, that's because we have a, t a stigma attached to being disabled. But the reality is, large print is really a great idea. And I think as Whitney aptly pointed out, People who don't identify as being disabled but are experiencing disability benefit 
from the changes, the access changes that can be provided in exhibits, and they are welcomed to your museum, and they participate in your museum. So the handouts that I gave you um, are... There, the stapled copy is a summary of the first meetings that, w that the National Disability Leadership has had relative to bringing together thoughts about a national strategy to tell our history. We, it's not cooked yet, so it's a perfect time for you to get involved if you'd like to involve your museums. Um, we need the partnership from the museum community to help us make this a big success. We need the wisdom of the museum community to help us tell our story and we need the support of the museum community to make it happen. So I hope that you'll look at those. There's also some links on there. Uh, I've given you my card so that you can contact me and I can put you in touch with the people who are creating this strategy. And um, I also gave you guys a brochure for our Next Big Step initiative because we want you also to hire people with disabilities to work for your museums. Thank you for your attention. She didn't even let me give her the wrap-up uh, sheet. So, um, so anyway, thank you to both Whitney and, and Colleen. And if there are um, questions now for anybody, we, we have about 15 minutes, and, and we would love to have a, a little bit of a dialogue so that we can help out. Yes? What museum, oh, the, the question is where can you find people in the community with disabilities to help inform your process of making your exhibits and your museum more accessible? Where in Washington? What, are you with a museum? Do you know Catherine Ott at the Smithsonian? Well, okay. Um, there are actually, I, for Washington, I would go to the American Association of Persons with Disabilities and the National Council on Independent Living. At the American Association of People of Persons with Disabilities, you want to contact Helena Berger. At the National Council on Independent Living, you might as well talk to Kelly Buckland. He's the executive director. Both of them would be an excellent resource for you in Washington. Kelly's, uh, I know Kelly's uh, email is kelly, K-E-L-L-Y, at ncil.org. But you can Google the National Council on Independent Living or the American Association of Persons with Disabilities and find both those guys. They'd be very good for you. To me? Just more of a comment. First oh. of all, I apologize for coming in late because I had another meeting. But my colleague and I are from Southern California, and we have uh, an advisory team that we brought together from various agencies and local institutions. Uh, and you know, they are Uh, th thank you for that comment. Uh, the comment, because we're 
recording this. The comment has to do with also finding local people. Um, one of the things you can do is contact the independent living centers in your uh, city. The independent living centers know where the disabled folks are. Um, you can go to a website that is www.ilru.org, and that will list all of the independent living centers in the country. Uh, when you get there, you want to go to directory. Uh, you want to click on directory or directory of centers, and that'll help you get into the disability community. Then, you, then from there, you can spread out to find particular groups that you're, you know, if you if you want to get even more disability specific. Yeah, and I would also encourage you to get people with disabilities to come in. Um, we're kind of tired of having non-disabled people come in and speak for us. It's really important to have consumers and get their perspective. But then again, you don't want your everyday consumer doesn't identify or doesn't know what's going on. But if you if you contact the centers, they can get you into that disability community and help you find the the folks. Mm-hmm. Go ahead and, and bring people in and don't feel like you have to have the ramp before you can start this process because I think a lot of folks are put off by even starting the process because they think it's going to be expensive. Right. You know, if it's really about changing attitudes, then it's really about getting the training and the staff and the volunteers before anything else. It's, it's a great comment of um, which was about, you know, for smaller museums, and there are a lot of, especially in this conference, there are going to be a lot of folks who are at that level of, you know, what do I do? I can't afford to, uh, to you know, to do all of the uh, bells and whistles right up front. And and so the comment is to get the, the training first for your staff because, as Colleen said and as we all found out, it's it's attitudes. Attitudes change, then comes, you know, th- then other things can happen. Other barriers can be broken and, and it can it can just be a ripple effect. Um, one of the things that n- none of us actually mentioned but we're all very proud of is also the fact that when we did this exhibit, there was so much information, as we alluded to, <laughs> that we um, we also did a website that still is is up and, and, and running, even though the exhibit is gone. And it's um, it's all run, the words all run together, actionforaccess.mohistory.org. So if you plug in, even just put in action for access, I think that would be the first hit. Oh, is it at Mo History? It's dot. I think it's dot. Actionforaccess.mohistory.org. But if that gets to be a problem, <laughs> just do Action for Access. That was the title of the website, um, and that and that was really a, a, a also a collaborative effort, and and we were able to put in there a lot more um, uh, images, a lot more information, and all of that kind of thing because that exhibit was smaller. Um, so I just wanted to make sure that we got that out there. Are there other questions, comments, things that we can help? Yes. Just another comment, uh, a follow-up for small museums. Uh, there, there are a lot of things you can do. Yes, training is crucial. But uh, for one of our two historic homes, we have only had a ramp now for a year and a half, Jan. Uh, prior to that, 
situation, you know, someone on our group and the entire group uh, would experience the same thing. We had hands-on objects which we brought down uh, to the entrance of the house and didn't take anyone into the house at that time so that every there was uh, an equitable treatment mm -hmm, for mm -hmm. everyone on the, on the visit. Very nice. Uh, also, we have uh, a two-story 1920s residence. Uh, you know, in some cases, we don't even offer the second floor as an option, uh, but we have uh, a photo book that we provide. Mm -hmm. So there's And I think that's a good point too. There are, you know, especially one of the things that I learned going through the process is that historic buildings, historic homes, historic structures are often struggle the, the most with where am I going to put a ramp? Where am I going to, you know, how, how are we going to put an elevator in a historic house? You know, it's, it's those kinds of questions that really become very difficult. And what it sounds like is that you, you found creative ways to, to get around the barrier and, and make it barrier, uh, free. And that's, that's exactly what we want to, we want to encourage is, you know, it's not always going to be that we can do all the bells and whistles, but what can we do and how can we be most inviting to everybody. That's that's the bottom the bottom line. Yes, back here. Colleen, can you answer the question about grants available for smaller institutions? I mean, and and making um, or or Whitney, do either one of you know? Um, I'm not. I'm not really um, familiar with the granting agencies and what they what they provide, but we might be able to get you something here. Well, uh, there is. Uh, it depends sometimes on whether or not you're getting a planning grant from an entity, and whether or not they, as part of your planning to make an exhibit come to life, whether or not they will allow you to include accessibility features. Um, the, it it just really depends. What we encourage people to do, and we've been asked this by cities and, and states, well, where can we get the money to provide accessibility? And our answer has always been, and, and it's it really does run pretty true, is that it it becomes part of your budget. When you're planning to do the exhibit, you put in a budget, a line item in your budget for the access that's going to be required. Uh, we've also had, we had a situation with the History Museum where... Um, where the where Bob Archibald wanted to he put on a new uh addition on one side of the museum and then wanted to make the other side of the museum accessible too so that you could come in from either side because it's a pretty large museum and the historic preservation board said it's a um historic building and you can't deface the structure that is not what the law says and uh Bob persevered and he asked for my husband's help and they came up with some good strategies, and the ramps that went on the front of the building are really attractive, and everybody uses them. But they they blend into and lend to the overall grace and beauty of that building. So when it's done well, it it's very successful, and you'll find that everybody's going to use it. So to get to the first part of the question about grants, uh, this would be a great opportunity to contact um, all of the federal granting agencies like ILMS and suggest a new program. 
Uh, it doesn't because you're right. Uh, a couple of thousand dollars can make a huge difference in a small institution's budget, and they give away a, a fairly sizable amount of money every year. So write your congressman, write ILMS. And the second part of the question about um, knowing what to do is the ADA actually requires that any entity that offers services to the public conduct an audit of their programs and offerings. And that really just means sitting down and changing that attitude. Are there barriers to participation for members of our community? If I do a lecture on the weekend, am I providing a sign language interpreter? Uh, am I providing uh, cart services? Is there some physical barrier that prevent people from getting into the lecture hall? Uh, in an exhibition, have, has the designer thought about how large to make the type, how contrast, there, how much contrast there should be? Um, and this is surprising. I mean, these are really things that we all think people should take for granted. We hosted an exhibition from a major institution in the L.A. area uh, designed by a well-known architectural firm from that area. Um, labels came gray on gray. Yeah, I'm like, really? <laughs> I didn't get that. <laughs> but conduct the audit. Uh, it can be done internally. And as Colleen says, if you invite some people with different abilities to come in and talk about their own experience coming to the building or, or to your activities and events, everybody on the – every staff member will get some new insight and they may recognize, and they can even bring their family members, because often we have family members with disabilities that and we stop thinking about them as having a disability. We just think of them as, oh, it's Uncle Joe who always uses a wheelchair or has a walker. We don't even think about it as a disability. But changing that attitude, changing that awareness is really crucial. Uh, the question was about finding resources on universal design. Uh, those are, and there is a Center for Universal Design that is associated with North Carolina State University, and they have some web um, sir, uh, information available on their website. Uh, there are seven principles, um, ease of use, um, tolerance for error, and I'm trying to remember what the other, um, I don't remember what the other five are. But <clears throat> those are, are really good principles to look at for uh, designing uh, overall experiences, and they're particularly helpful uh, in industrial uh, or commercial design. Uh, haven't found quite so much uh, useful yet about how to apply those principles for exhibition design. Uh, one of the things that I was talking with Colleen earlier uh, there is a, a fellow in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, who uh, is working with universal design. And so I hope to be down there in a couple of weeks, and I'm going to have a long sort of heart-to-heart -heart conversation about how we include that. Sure. The uh, Starkloff Disability Institute, which I represent, and the R.L. Mace Universal Design Institute in Chapel Hill, 
Richard Duncan, who you're going to see. Richard is my partner in producing a national universal design conference in uh, St. Louis. It'll be May 6th through 9th, uh, 2013, at St. Louis University. The um, website for it is uh, udsummit.org, and you can find out more about that. But let me give you some examples, because Whitney has alluded to them a little bit. Um, First of all, the reason that there are principles of universal design is that the creator, Ron Mace, did not want to make universal design into a code, because any time you do a code, then a code becomes all that you have to do, not all that you can do. And, and Ron wanted, Ron was an architect who had polio, uh, who understood how, how important it was that we start designing in the community to include all people, not just designing uh, spaces that would segregate folks with disabilities. So he uh, created the principles of universal design through the instant, the universal design, the Center for Universal Design at NC State, but it's now defunct. You can go to their website. If you just Google universal design, you'll, you'll find uh, information on that website. They, they produced a lot of good materials. Um, the uh, way to contact Richard Duncan is R. Duncan at udinstitute.org in North Carolina, and um, I'm also a resource. I gave you my card. Things like, um, Whitney alluded to contrast. The gray on gray doesn't provide enough contrast for people who are legally blind to see things. Um, color change just in a space. If you had, there's a museum in Europe, and I can't remember where exactly it is, but it's a concrete museum, and they have created in the concrete floors a textured path that goes through the entire museum. And people who are blind feel the texture under their shoes. That's informational. It's wayfinding information for them. They can find their way through that whole museum by following that path, sort of like the yellow brick road. Uh, people who are sighted would not know that that was informational, that cool design strategy for the museum. There are lots and lots of techniques. Color change, texture change are very important. Um, there, there's just so many that I, I don't have time to go into because I'm getting the wrap-up sign. But anyway, uh, there's lots of information on universal design. Are there any other questions? We still have a few minutes. Yes. Yes. Uh, that's basically classroom-based, but uh, we have actually been able to take some of those principles also so that there can be uh, you know, more emphasis on an equitable uh, interpretive approach that there are times to reach out to specific uh, audiences with cognitive impairments. Mm -hmm. Right, yeah. And the thing that was difficult in, in following up on the comment, it, it's difficult when you, when you become a, you start thinking about an exhibit and you're, you're thinking about objects and you're thinking about stories to tell. The one, the one area that I think that our ADA exhibit fell slightly short on was this notion of, of how do we tell the story of people who have cognitive and developmental disabilities or mental illness. Um, the one thing 
that I was reminded was that, you know, learning styles are key. I mean, it doesn't matter whether we're doing an exhibit on the ADA or we're just doing any any exhibit. Learning styles are different and they vary. They run the gamut of, you know, whether, you know, whether we're talking about children or adults or what have you. And so that um, that's really one of those areas that, that the History Museum has to really think hard about because, you know, it, it just adds one more one more level of of how we define accessibility. And and the thing that was interesting with the ADA is we we had a a comment station that we wanted to put at the end of the of the exhibit, and um, one of our um, advisory board members worked with people with um, developmental and, and cognitive disabilities and. We thought, oh, you know, we're trying, this is small budget. This is, you know, not a big exhibit. We're just going to put this, um, we're just going to put a table there and we're going to have people write their comments. And Sharon, um, who was, who was our advisor said, um, you know, not all, um, people who have, uh, cognitive and, and developmental disabilities want to use a pencil or a pen or whatever it is. They want to, they might want to type. They might want to speak it. Um, and <laughs> Whitney and I just kind of looked at each other like, what does that, you know, what, what, what does that look like now, you know? And, and it ended up being a computer station. And, um, and we got a lot of comments through that, through that station. But, you know, we were just thinking, oh, we're just going to go to low tech. But at some level, we have to remember that low tech doesn't necessarily mean what's going to be most accessible. So, so that was, a, that was one of those learning curves. And, um, you know, and, and I could just watch those advisors around the table constantly thinking, yeah, there's another one. You know, we can check that one off. They got it finally, but it took us a while. So um, I, I just want to say that it that um, when you embark on, if you haven't, and it sounds like some folks certainly have, but when when you are able to embark on this this new path of of finding ways to be accessible in your museum and your in your um, whatever your public structures are that. It is life changing, and it's not just um, for the folks who who are your visitors and the people that um, that we um, hope to bring in, but it's for the staff as well. And that's that's where um, we we began this morning, and and that's where we end today. Is that you know it's it's really um, an opportunity to change lives, both ours and our visitors. Are there any final comments before we say thank you? And what was the name? Yes, that, yeah. Universal Design for Learning. Universal, Universal Design for Learning is a site that you could go to for um, people who have cognitive and mental. Oh, it, it, it's largely, uh, you know, considering different learning styles. Learning styles, right? Okay. Yeah. Thank you. I, I, there are moments where we forget that we have to that nobody's hearing hearing the comments. So yes. Yeah, so um, any other final comments? Thank you all for being here, and um, we appreciate your your staying with us. <laughs> Take extra ones and pass them out.